This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770, our highlights podcast. We revisited the issue of fighting in hockey and the specific question of whether everything we're learning about fighting and uh, even discussions amongst NHL brass themselves, whether it leads us to a conclusion that fighting should be banned in hockey. We heard from Scott Stinson from the National Post. We also uh, recapped a bit of the interview yesterday between Maria Hennen, who is the uh, defense lawyer for Gian Gomeshi, and Peter Mansbridge from the CBC. They spoke on the National last night. Uh, and some of the uh, questions were shocking. The answers, though, uh, quite uh, quite on point. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekdays from 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Now let's talk about something Canadian. <laughs> Sounds good. Canadian huh? content. Yeah. CRTC loves that. Do we get, by the way, do we get, uh, what are we, what are we, like 100% CanCon here? Pretty much. Pretty much all the time. (laughs) Does that balance out with our music stations? Or does Q107 have to play a lot of Trooper? Well, they should, they should get some credit, maybe. we Like some kind of cap-and-trade system. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? Like, if we could do that, you know? I mean, I used to work at this place. We wouldn't play Nickelback, but you had to pay a price for that, so. Well, I tell you what, if I were on Q107, I'd I'd play nothing but Trooper and Loverboy. So it would also be 100% CanCon, so there you go. Okay. What about Helix? Does Helix fit into your camp? Chilliwack. Oh, yeah. Was Chilliwack from, where were they from? I don't know. I forget. And was Chicago from Chicago? These are all questions that we're going to answer at some point, but not right now. The question uh, of the hour is, uh, should we get rid of the fights in the hockey? Should they ban fighting in hockey? The correct answer is yes, by the way, but uh, I'm open to discussing it. Well, and we kind of got into this yesterday. We heard from John Branch from the New York Times, and they have this big scoop about all these emails that have come out where, you know, Gary Bettman and others are basically acknowledging the link between concussions and CTE and fighting in concussions and what that means for the NHL, what it means for their legal position, but, yeah, also what it means for the question of, of fighting in hockey. Now we learn today, as people have been going through these emails, at one point five years ago, Brendan Shanahan actually comes right out and says, we got to do this, guys. We got to ban fighting. Yeah, it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, I posted that on our, our Facebook page today, Rob. Uh, Facebook.com slash Newstalk 770 Calgary. And, and you're right. Brendan Shanahan did write an email. He didn't just come out and say it, though. He said it to uh, Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, Colin Campbell. And can I read this to you before we get to Scott Stinson? Yeah. All right. He said, we all know, this is Brendan Shanahan now. This is in an email that's part of that big NHL email dump. So this is what Brendan Shanahan wrote. Quote, We all know that we've talked about a time when we impose stiffer penalties for fighting, so I wouldn't see this so much as reactionary but more opportunistic that the timing is right to get the support to finally say enough, regardless of what the specific reasons are that drove Wade to this, Wade Belak. I think it simply goes back to concussions and brain injuries. The specific role is also becoming more specialized and more pressurized, that of enforcer. Some former enforcers have reached out to me and offered their support to us. They're all scared. Fighting, like slashing, is not legal. There is a penalty. Unlike fighting, however, teams don't employ slashers for the simple role. We could work out the details, but maybe it's time to propose increases in the penalty for fighting. If you fight, you get kicked out. It's only a matter of time before the CHL, Canadian Hockey League, and other feeder leagues do it. Let's be first. I believe it's the right thing to do. That's Brendan Shanahan five years ago. They're still fighting in the NHL. Well, but what does it look like to ban fighting? I mean, fighting is technically a penalty. You 
get sent to the the sin bin for for doing what you shouldn't be doing. Right? It's like saying we could ban elbowing in hockey because I guess technically it is. Elbowing's a penalty. But do we need to, to jump in and you know stop those fights when they happen, kick people out of the game for fighting, really crack down hard on it? Or do we just let it keep going when it seems to be going naturally because fighting is way down? Hey, Scott Stinson joins us. You know him. He's a national sports columnist for Post Media News. Uh, comes on our program from time to time, usually to talk about this sport. Scott, welcome back. Hello, gentlemen. Where is Chilliwack from? We're looking into that. Yeah, we're looking into that right now. Um, so, Scott, what do you think here? I mean, we've got Brendan Shanahan five years ago saying the time is now, and uh, it's been a long time since then. I mean, should they get rid of fighting once and for all? Well, I don't see why they, why they haven't. I mean, that this was sort of the thing that I wrote yesterday was keyed off that exchange where even if you take, and it was Gary Bettman sort of taking the opposite side of that argument, on whether fighting causes concussions. Uh, but even he was sort of saying, well, maybe some of these guys have some preconditions going in and then this exacerbates it. And later in life, they have personal tragedies, which I think his word. Um, so even if you acknowledge that, like, maybe in some ex- some rare cases, this is leads to real problems later in life, then wouldn't you want to legislate it out at that point? I mean, it just seems crazy that five years ago they're acknowledging that people are dying and maybe fighting had something to do with it. Um, and they chose to do nothing. I mean, yes, it is sort of organically coming out of the game because teams are realizing there's very little value in giving a roster spot to a guy who just fights. But there is still fighting that takes place. Um, it is not illegal to the extent that it is in other sports where if you fight, you get automatically ejected or you get suspended or you get suspended for some length of time. I mean, if you want to remove fighting from the game, I think it's pretty easy to do so. You just really increase the penalty for it, and then teams will stop doing it. There'll be absolutely no value in having a guy on your roster whose only role is to get suspended once every four games. You know, like, it, it could be done. You just have to want to do it. And what, what all the, the yeah. other reasons, sorry, sorry, just to say all the other reasons for not doing it are because you choose not to. Well, and I wanted to ask you, though, what, what would the penalty be? What would it look like uh, under those kinds of rules? If, if two guys drop the gloves, what would happen? I think you go automatic ejection and a one- or two-game penalty, something along those lines, uh, or one- or two-game suspension. And you just have to make it hard enough that players will realize, and teams will realize we're not doing this. I mean, it can happen in other sports. Uh, if you know in the NBA, the NFL, if you fight some guy in the in the way that you do in the NFL, I'm not talking the odd like swing or or you know scrum that kind of ends up with a little guy taking a swing at somebody, but like an actual we're going to stop play and fight each other. If that happened in any other sport, I mean it, the the punishments would be severe, really severe. I'm not sure that there's an obvious parallel. But um, that's kind of, I think, how you have to wrap your head around it is just say we're not going to allow this to happen and we're going to institute a really harsh penalty and it's up to the teams to figure out how to deal with that. And I think once you do that, then players would realize that just dropping your gloves and fighting a guy at center ice is, is no longer kosher. And so they wouldn't do it. Do you have to find the team as well, though? I mean, is it enough to just suspend the player? Or do you have to go to the organization that gives a roster spot to a guy whose job it is to rack up the PIMS? Yeah, that might be one way. That might be a, a, a way to do it, certainly in the transition period, to say we're going to make sure that it's not just falling on these you know, players. If, if it's 
if it's a team that is throwing a guy out there who's basically sacrificing his salary because he's going to know that his job is to get suspended, then yeah, sure, it, it would make sense to also levy some sort of fine on the on the team or to make the team pay the suspended players, you know, salary for that period and have instead of the player's salary being bought by the league, all these sort of other options would be out there. But I just think the the bottom line is it can be done. You just have to want to do it. And obviously, you know, five years hence of those emails you discussed so far, there's not the will to do it. Well, and I guess in terms of why we're doing it, is it because we're taking a, a moral stand on, on the act of fighting itself? Are we doing it for reasons related to concussions? Because people will point out, you know, Scott, we got a lot of former enforcers who are fine. They don't have CTE or anything like sure. that. Conversely, we got guys like Paul Correa, Pat LaFontaine, and others who weren't fighters and who still had their careers cut short by concussions. I actually think, in a way, the fighting and concussion thing gets mixed up in a way it doesn't need to because I... Right absolutely agree that fighting is not necessarily the leading cause of concussions and there are lots of fights where they never managed to successfully punch each other they just kind of tug and flail and you know it's not like a boxing match where they square off and land clean blows but i would also say that that the role of an enforcer and the act of a hockey fight really beats the hell out of you regardless of whether or not you get concussed i mean these guys have you know broken hands and fingers and they punch people on the helmet and and all sorts of you know associated pains i think with being an enforcer it's just it's not a pleasant job at all so i think that's kind of where i come from it too you know some of these guys who unfortunately had post you know retirement problems it might not have been due necessarily to concussions but i think you could argue that it was largely due in part to the sort of aftermath of their career and when you have those kind of situations i think that seems like something that's worth preventing in the future as opposed to just saying well it'll work its way out of the game eventually we'll just have to wait for it to happen right it's the prevention piece right i mean the point i argue on our website newstalk770.com today scott is that um, the NHL has taken steps to protect its players in the past. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. do, or am I mistaken? Are helmets and certain types of protective equipment not mandatory in the NHL? They just organically came to be that everybody wears them today. So, no, they they were made mandatory. Right. It was the same sort of argument happened. And you know, in fact, if you read the lawsuit that's uh, that these email releases are related to, they make that argument that once the NHL took the duty of care to say we are aware that you need to have your head protected, that they further should have extended that to say, we need to do whatever we can to make sure you don't get your head bashed in by either an elbow to the head or a fist yeah. in this case. So, so you know, they've, they've taken action on some of it, but not the other thing. Right. And further to that point, Dan, I mean, the NHL is in a situation here where they, they are kind of watching how all this CTE stuff is playing out, how uh, players get concussions, what happens to them afterwards. And I mean, I think that the big awakening should have been the Junior Seau suicide when the NFL was kind of like, okay, well, maybe, you know, (laughs) we're going to have to answer, uh, you know, answer to this uh, eventually here. So now when you look at the NFL and what are they paying out, like a billion dollars to these players, if you're the NHL, you should be looking at that and saying, guys, we got to make sure that that we're not paying out a billion dollars to our players. We got to do everything that we can, not just for the health and well-being of our players, but to like uh, avoid further damages down the road. Yeah, to save the business. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it is surprising to me, given you know the the fact that the NHL, by all accounts, seems quite willing to fight this lawsuit to the courts um, and not settle it. They have no interest in settling it. They keep saying we totally disagree with the notion that we've done anything wrong. You know, and I wrote this the other day too. Is that the whole fighting thing seems to undermine that argument totally? You know, if you're going to say we always take player safety super important you know very seriously and it's top of mind for us but we're not gonna tell fighters they shouldn't play beyond a five-minute penalty then like i just don't see how those two things are you know in concert with each other as a concept it just seems crazy to me that you're allowing this one thing to proliferate a little i mean it's as you said it's been sort of organically moving its way out of the game but it still exists and then at the same time, you're saying we absolutely take player safety seriously and we want to make sure that, you know, no one takes unnecessary risks playing our game. Well, tell that to the guy whose job is to, you know, once every four games to go on the ice late the period and fight somebody. Well, one that stood out to me, back in 2008, there was a, a guy playing in a senior men's league game and got in a fight, lost his helmet during the fight, fell on the ice, hit his head on the mm-hmm. ice, was uh, in a coma, was in critical condition. Bob McKenzie from TSN was emailing Colin Campbell about it and said, this is kind of the, the nightmare scenario for hockey. And, and Colin Campbell's response, he talks about it, and he says, I guess if I had real balls, I would go public and go hard, but I won't. That was an interesting response. They were sort of scared of that that nightmare scenario, but but almost too afraid to talk publicly about it. I do wonder if the explanation for the NHL's reluctance on this is, and then they have alluded to it before, that they know the fans like fighting. Um, Bettman has said on many occasions, you know, we know our fans enjoy the physicality of our game. And I do wonder if sort of the unspoken part here is an agreement amongst senior NHL types that ban like really coming out strong against fighting potentially damages the game in the eyes of some of their most loyal fans. And they don't really want to say that, but that's part of the motivating factor. I mean, I don't know why to your point about the whole Colin Campbell thing about if I had balls, I would do this. Like, well, why wouldn't he do it? Is it because he doesn't want to actually get to the point where, planning his ban like he's afraid to take it that far because the end game of that is that there will be no fighting in the nhl and no one really wants to get to that point because for whatever reason i mean i wonder if that's the consequence here is that they know that there is a market for this stuff and so by doing it they'd be sort of kneecapping themselves and with yeah. some constituency of the audience that- nobody wants to incur the wrath of don cherry well, yeah, look, and, and, and I, I say, too, like, I like hockey fights. You know, I'm one of these people, I'll stand up and I'll, I, I don't exactly hoot and holler. It's not in my nature, but I get it. And, and I understand that no one turns away or covers their eyes when a couple of guys drop the gloves. But the, the thing that's missing in all these email dumps, I mean, we're hearing some interesting uh, turns of phrase from the, the Colin Campbell types. Uh, we're seeing Brendan Shanahan say, look, uh, we got to end the hockey fights. Um, but what we're not hearing from is the board of governors and we're not hearing from the team owners on this. And is there just so much friction there that the owners think to themselves, I don't really give a damn. I want to fights in the game. I can sell tickets based on that. There actually was an exchange in there somewhere where some, well, somebody from the media had sort of sent an informal poll to GMs and just said, I want you to respond to this quick poll. Do you want to see fighting band? What's your feeling on the instigator penalty? Like it was two or three questions. And I think it was Bob Ganey. It was one of the GMs had forwarded it to Colin Campbell and said, I don't think we should be responding to these kinds of things. Actually, it might have been Kevin Lowe. Anyway, whatever. 
it was a guy who said, I don't think we should be responding to these questions on fighting because what if all the GMs come out and say, you know, independent of one another, we don't need to have fighting in the NHL and we don't know what the board of governors thinks. I mean, and, and that person's argument was, he made a good point. Like what if all the GMs basically, you know, 30 of them who hadn't talked to each other all told somebody they don't want to see any more fighting in the NHL. And then the board of governors got together and said, wait a second, we own these teams and nobody told us that this is what our GMs were, you know, mounting a campaign for. So there is a very good question of of what the not just the league offices, but what the league owners think. And if we think of it in the context of ultimately Gary Batman is working for the owners, you know, maybe that's where the where the motivation comes from to continue to have this aspect of the game as part of you know, what is sold to fans, because maybe the owners of the team feel like without this aspect of the game uh, available to sell, they will have a harder time, you know, putting fans in the seats and getting fans to tune in. I don't know. I, I find that argument, again, sort of outdated and that it seems like we it manages quite fine without anything other than stage fights. But perhaps the people who own the teams don't feel that way. All right, Scott, well, we're, we're going to leave it at that. We'll, like, Chilliwack play us out of this interview. From Vancouver, B.C., by the way, I should mention. Ah, there you go. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate it. All right, you guys. All right, bye-bye. Scott Stinson, uh, sports writer, national sports columnist, for Post Media News. I don't want to, I don't want to tell her. No. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll hear from you after this uh, commercial break. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. No, 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 no. We got, wait a minute, so we got, we got something uh, better for this. That's Chilliwack from Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> Not Vancouver from Chilliwack. That's a different band. Totally different band. Not nearly as successful, by the way. How many bands are there named after cities, right? There's Boston and Chicago and Chilliwack. Do you count Baltimore? I don't even know what that is. Uh, can we, Patrick, can you help us find Baltimore? This is called Tarzan Song, I think but it's called. I, but I don't know if that would count. Tarzan Boy, thank you. Uh, what about it. L.A. Guns? Would that count? No. Like, like it's got to be the just city. the name of the just city? Just the city, that's it. Okay. I'm going to think about that for a little bit. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, talk to Rodney here on line one. Hi, Rodney. Thanks for the call. Hi. Uh, as far as this thing about the uh, NHL, yeah. what are you thinking about? It's, you know, it's like a fireman or a cop saying, you know, I got shot or firemen got burnt. I mean, that's just part of the game. And uh, everybody bought into it from the time they're a kid. And in hockey, just continue. And nobody ever researches about these other guys' offline. Like, for instance, let's look at uh, Bob Probert. You know, I mean, people had different drug problems, too, and they're doing cocaine. But hang on, hang on a second. How is it part of the game? Kids don't learn how to fight. It's not part of the game as a kid. There are leagues all around the world where there's no fighting. Are you saying something's missing? What I mean by part of the game, it becomes, as you start to go into the uh, junior leagues and that, you realize that fighting's there. There's fighting, there's harder It's there because hitting. we allow it. If, if, if all of a sudden baseball decided they were going to allow players to fight, there would be fighting in baseball. It's not part of the game. It, it exists because it's tolerated. Yeah, they do fight in baseball when they're, you know, in exactly. the pitcher the guy. So, but you understand the point Rob's making, though, Rodney. No one it's, says that that's yeah. part of the game. You don't, like, you know, swing, you hit the ball, and on your way to first, you got to beat somebody up. Like, it's not part of the game. It's just something that happens during the event. 
Well, you know, you could say the same thing. You know, you're not expecting. No, fights break to out in football games. Fightball, fights break out in, in basketball games. Nobody says, "Hey, you know, that's that's part of the game." People say, "No, you I can't mean, fight in the middle of this game," and 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 they deal with it. So, hockey's the one sport that says, "Well, okay, you know, these guys got to blow off some steam and then sit down for five minutes." Well, I agree with you. You're going to take that. You could take it out and see how it goes. And uh, I don't think the fans will go away, or they'll come back, or they'll. Uh, the cheap shot hits. I don't know. I think right. they'll always be there if you take the fighting out. Then. But fighting's down. Is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, the fighting's down is a good thing in a sense because it's, you know, it, what you want to see out there is you want to see fast, a fast game, uh, skill. Uh, you know, the guy can take from one end to the other. And right. that. So when people so, say scoring's down, that's a bad yeah. thing because that's what we want to see. That's part of the game. If something is, is if it's good that something's down, I don't know how you can say it's part of the game. But well, I don't. What I see is they can't blame the NHL so much for like head concussions and that. Let's look at the other aspects of their whole life. Like, were you living a clean life? Were you drug free? Okay, but that's doing that's your... that's beyond the purview of the NHL. I, I understand that argument, yeah. but that's not the case. If if yeah. if they go to the NHL and they make the claim that you allowed something to happen. Uh, like, for example, in going back to your firefighter uh, analogy, which I, I don't think is applicable at all, but it's a firefighter's job to fight fires. It's not a firefighter's job to run into a burning building when it's totally dangerous to do so. In fact, they, they actually practice not doing that. So if you were to say then that the chief was just sending all these dumb firefighters into the burning structure and they came out later on and they said, hey, that turned out to be killing a lot of us, I think those firefighters would have a case there. That's the point that we're making with fighting in the NHL. I think I'm like you, Rodney. I like fighting in the NHL. I think it's an entertaining aspect of it. But it's not part of the game. And you know that because the game is decided by the team that scores the most goals. The victory is decided by the team that scores the most goals, not the team that gets into the most fights. Yeah, but they, it's become you know it's become such a business. It's part of the culture. It, yeah, see that's it. Now yeah, now, now you're onto it, Rodney, and that's the best point to make to end the call is that it's it's become a business, and that's not a reason to continue doing something, putting people in harm's way to profit one individual while risking the health and well-being of another. That's just not kosher, and the NHL knows that. The NFL has learned that. You know, it's interesting because you know if if you called the police, if you were playing a game of hockey and you got slashed on the arm, and you called the police and say, you know, I was this guy hit me with a hockey stick. I wouldn't go anywhere because there, there's a reasonable expectation that that's going to happen to you in a hockey game. So in a way, you could argue, as maybe Rodney was trying to do, slashing is part of the game. People have sticks. They're on the ice. They're swinging those sticks around. Sometimes they'll get mad, and sometimes they'll hit other players with their stick. The question is, does the NHL tolerate that? Does the NHL encourage that? No, they don't. So yeah, okay, fine. Slashing's part of the game. But let's be clear what we mean when we talk about things being part of the game and what we want to keep in and what we want to get rid of it's actually the point that brendan shanahan made in that email he says that slasher is not a role that you send some guy over the boards to go slash somebody right, it's exactly. an incidental occurrence in a game it's not a role that uh that somebody plays uh, i came up with three more bands named after cities phoenix toronto someone texted oh that's pretty good calexico i like that band on the alt that's circuit. a city yeah uh yeah it's in like someone texted california mexico border. Oh, okay someone texted kansas and i had to i had to throw the flag Kansas is a state, not a city. But if it was called Kansas City, you'd, you'd acquiesce. That's, but it's not. Uh, Nazareth. Oh, yeah, okay. They shouldn't have got on that flight tonight. I think it's Nazareth, right? This is Baltimore, by the way. Remember this one? Oh. Okay. This was like a Listerine commercial I'm for a while. I'm usually pretty there. good at name that tune. I would have no idea who did this song. I know this song. 
Eventually it gets really awesome. So, uh, I'm not aware of a city called Baltimore. <laughs> All right, after the news to 1130, we're going to talk about this interview that uh, Marie Hennon, the, um, the, the defense lawyer for Gian Gomeshi, did on Peter Mansbridge yesterday. And I'm trying to figure out exactly what the point of this interview is. Is it for Peter Mansbridge to look like he's really sensitive to the needs of women nationwide? Or did Marie Hennon have to walk out and say, guys, give your heads a shake. We have a justice system in this country. And it works. And we well, should be proud of that. I, it needed to be said, unfortunately. So we'll get into that when we come back here. King Kane and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, welcome back. King Kane and Breckenridge, News Talk 770. Uh, a couple other texts on the bands. People, uh, someone mentioned Berlin. It's a good one. Toronto. Did we already mention Toronto? That yeah. was a band, a band called Toronto. And but the people that texted us to say Chilliwack, we we already. <laughs> so the reason we're talking about it is because we mentioned Chilliwack. I wonder if Roxette is a place name, by the way. Why did we mention that in the first place? How did that? How we start talking about Chilliwack? Oh, we're talking about CanCon. And oh yeah, right. That's what it was. You said more okay. Chilliwack. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on because this was. Well, even this, I forget what we were talking about. <laughs> this to me is some stunning television. Yeah, uh, I was. Hey, by the way, can I give a plug? I, I retweeted this. So if you're following me at Rob Breckenridge on Twitter, like so many other happy and satisfied tweeters, I, I, ret- <laughs> I retweeted our, our producer, Andrea Montgomery, who wrote a really fascinating blog post uh, sharing her thoughts on, on Marie Hennon. Uh, yeah, so did I. I mean, albeit just now. But uh, Andrea, uh, you, you should read this, actually. This is, uh, yeah, follow Rob, follow me at Roger Kincaid. And more of you should do that, by the way, uh, to read Andrea's thoughts because, um, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I half jokingly say she flew off the handle when she read this. Her, her reaction to this was outstanding. And uh, her thoughts, uh, as posted online today, are, are quite on point, I believe. Now, I also blogged about it. <laughs> yeah, but, but why? We're pointing these things out. But, but why bother? Now, if you want to see the, this entire interview, get the video posted uh, in the blog at Newstalk770.com. You can join in on, on Facebook as well and uh, link to the blog and share your thoughts there. So Murray Hannon is the lawyer, still is the lawyer for uh, Jean Gomeshi because, of course, Mr. Gomeshi has another trial coming up. This is a separate allegation, something that allegedly took place at the CBC. So it's going to be a very different kind of trial. One accuser, not a romantic relationship, potentially even witnesses who can who can back up what the accuser is saying. Right. Very different trial. But obviously what happened here with three different accusers, three women that he'd been romantically involved with, is that the case just fell apart, completely collapsed because of the, the dishonesty and inconsistency from the witnesses. Things they didn't disclose, things they contradicted themselves on. Now, Marie Hennon did a great job in detailing all of that, finding all of these old emails and and pointing all of this out. You know, she some of those days as people were in the courthouse covering this said, boy, she really shredded those witnesses. She really picked apart their their story. Don't, don't we have a problem with the language in all of this, by the way? Because even even hearing you describe Marie Hennon did a great job of, I think you could have just left it at providing thorough defense for her client, which is something that we afford in our legal system. It's as though we want, we, we wish Marie Hennon wasn't allowed to be Gian Gomeshi's defense. It's as though we think that the Crown prosecutor should be the ones who, who, who can drive the narrative, and the defense attorney should basically be a mannequin wearing whatever that black robe is with the white tie. Well, and that cuts to the heart of it. 
everyone's entitled to a defense. Everyone's entitled to a presumption of innocence. Everyone's entitled to mount a vigorous defense. And the onus in every single case that comes before the courts is for the crown to prove its case, for the crown to prove the allegations they're leveling against somebody. Every single case, regardless of what you're accused of, regardless of what you're charged of, you're entitled to mount a defense. We don't cut corners. The onus is always on the crown to prove their case. And the notion we would call lawyers into disrepute for providing that crucial role. I mean, remember, Stockwell Day got into trouble uh, about this, which actually led to a defamation suit that was settled out of court when, when he impugned the, the motives of a lawyer who was representing an accused pedophile in, in Red Deer. So somehow the lawyer was okay with pedophilia. The lawyer was representing an accused, and that's what lawyers do. And every accused deserves representation. Every accused deserves to mount a defense. And we should never impugn lawyers for 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 playing that role if the crown's got a solid case then make it in court and we'll we'll put the guilty away that, that's not your opinion though by the way right that's just uh, how we've structured our courts right i mean it might be your opinion but that's well, beside the point yeah happily <laughs> yes uh okay I, I think we need to get to this interview because um it's kind of stunning in some respects, but it, it also puts to this this question that the CBC has put up on their website today. Uh, Gian Gameshi's lawyer denies she has betrayed women. Who, who, what, what pervert thought she did? Who took the, the this idea that a woman uh, could could act out her role in the court system and it be just a, a grand betrayal of fifty one percent of this country? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with that clip? Because this one, as you say, all the headlines are, are pouncing on. Everybody's reacting to that this would even be asked. So here's Peter Mansbridge asking Marie Hennon if she's a, a traitor to her gender. When women say you betrayed them, some women say uh, you betrayed them. I respect their right to say it. Uh, I don't respect uh, their opinion or agree with it. Uh, I know who I am. Uh, I know what my beliefs are. There's no question in my mind. And I don't feel the need to have to justify myself. Do you think the same would have been said about a male lawyer? Well, like I don't the things that were being said about you. Uh, I don't think the same thing is said about a male lawyer, or when, more importantly, males disagree with each other or on, are on opposite sides of the things. You're not viewed as a person who betrays your gender. You're viewed as people who disagree. So when they say, as some said, they use that old <laughs> phrase, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help women. Oh, well, I know what my role is on the justice system. Uh, and to characterize it in that way, that you are against women, is a fundamental misconception of what we do in the justice system. I mean, female judges uh, adjudicate all sorts of cases, including sexual assault cases. Uh, they are not traitors to the gender when they acquit. Uh, and they are not supporters of the gender when they convict. They are doing their job, as am I. Is this difficult to understand? <laughs> It is. It's good that she answered the question. It's just unfortunate that it needed to be asked in the first place. Like, oh, totally. I think her answer is worth hearing, which I guess means that the question was worth asking, if only to get the answer. Yeah, and the the you know bringing guys into it. Um, you know, Andrea points out in this blog post that we're we're directing you to. Uh, would the same question be asked of a male? Absolutely not. Full stop. Um, the question in and of itself has a sexist slant to it. Now. No one's asked the Crown attorney, did you guys betray men by prosecuting this case? Like, no, and, and because it's a stupid question. Right, but, I mean... Women yeah. weren't on trial here. No. Three women were complainants. But there was, no, there was no gender that was on trial here. And let me put it to you this way. If Gian Gameshi had attacked three men, if three men had come forward with the complaint of sexual assault, 
What would be different? What would be materially different about this case? Because in the eyes of the law, I mean, because it would be a sexual assault case. And we would have the same testimony. Let's just say everything is the same, except the complainants are three men instead of three women. Would we ask any of these ridiculous questions in the aftermath? No. Well, but let me give you an example of where it would be asked. It doesn't mean it's right, but it would be asked. We've had some cases in the U.S. where, where police have shot uh, black men, right. young black men, or even the George Zimmerman case, which was not a, a, a police officer. If a black lawyer were to represent those white people accused of, of shooting and killing young black men, I think those lawyers would face the same kind of accusations. That you're betraying your race. Right. How can you as a black man defend this white cop who shot and killed this, this unarmed black man? That, that would be asked. But again, as we say, everyone's entitled to a defense. Is there more? Or should we take a break right here and uh, recalibrate? Why do we do that? We had a few more clips of Marie Hennon uh, chatting on, on the CBC last night with Peter Mansbridge. You can watch the whole interview at our website uh, at our blog, Newstalk770.com. We're back after this. Well, let's go back to some more of this audio from last night. Marie Hennon doing an interview, she says at one point that she didn't want to do or didn't want to have to do, but felt a need to do. So speaking with Peter Mansbridge uh, about the Gomeshi case and her role as, as his attorney. And uh, let me play this one. There, there's some really interesting answers she gives. Now, Peter Mansbridge starts this one by asking about, well, he said, she said, you know, and the, these women got on the stand and had, had to face tough questions and Gomeshi got to choose not to testify and he didn't face that same scrutiny. But she tries to reframe and say, keep in mind here, that's not a he said, she said, this is not a lawsuit. This is the weight of the state being brought to bear on one person. And that's what an accused is. And, and here's how she explains that. The minute you are sitting across from me in a chair in this office, you understand the full weight of the state against you. You understand how insignificant you are and that we cannot remember those lessons and understand why we say you state, if you have chosen me, must bear the burden of proof and you must prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, is to forget about the presumption of innocence. Now, let me just address the he said, she said issue. Uh, cases are often determined on credibility. Most evidence is circumstantial. Uh, most evidence does turn on credibility. And that requires a judge to engage in an assessment of it. And so if you can't look at the credibility of a person or the reliability of a person or inconsistency or what their explanations are for saying certain things, then what we should probably do is just not have a system at all. And you can just say what you wish and we'll go straight to conviction. We don't want that. I don't think anybody is, is challenging the presumption of innocence. The issue is in trials like this is one of fairness where the stories of the complainants are challenged uh, in an appropriate way that the system allows, and yet the position of the accused is not challenged at all, if they choose not to understand. What, what people need to understand, and what is always stunning to uh, people that I have dealt with for the past 25 years, whether they are the Attorney General or whoever it is, um, is how easy it is to find yourself sitting in my office. How easy it is to have the weight of the state and the police force and the extraordinary resources that they have when a finger of blame is pointed at you. And so in those circumstances, we say you have to prove the case. And that is true of any case. There's nothing special about the type of crime. 
All right. So an interesting response. And now... There are a couple of the clips we can get to, and she does get into the notion whether sexual assault cases are different or unique somehow, whether the, the system failed here. But her point about let's remember what it means to be an accused. Right? These women, even though it was uncomfortable for them on the stand, right, they didn't face the prospect of going to jail. And just try to think of, of yourself in a position where now the state has accused you of committing a crime. You know you didn't commit the crime. Now, you can assume that the truth is going to come out in the end, but you need to think about what does it take to, to fight and to ensure that uh, you don't wrongly go to jail. If the state is convinced that you did something, they intend to, to prosecute you for it. Everything that's involved in fighting that. It's, it's no easy task. Yeah, we, look, we have it set up the way that we do. And, and by the way, <clears throat> would you trade our court system for any other one in the world? Would you, would you rather be Neil Bantelman in Indonesia right now? Well, that's a good example, yeah. Right. So I, I, I'm, the thing that strikes me about the aftermath of this trial and why Marie Hennon should not have to give this interview, but thank God she is because she's giving us a master class in civility that we could probably use to hear right now. But we're, we're dwelling on this trial that went well. I, it didn't yield the result that many people wanted. I get that. And this is, it doesn't matter that I think Gian Gomeshi is a dog who mistreats women. That, none of that matters. What matters is that the court system worked, that justice actually prevailed here. Ugly as it was, messy as it was, and hurtful as it was. But if you think that the problem is the trial, then I think that we're missing a huge part of this conversation that starts well before we get to court on these matters. And we're not even talking about that. Yeah. Well, let's go to the phones. We'll take some calls here, too. we got Mark on the line. Mark, go ahead. Hey, guys. I had to mark down what I was going to say because it took so long, but that's fine. Uh, um, I think it's a ridiculous question that he asked her because when my wife and I talked about it, uh, the question never even came to our mind until now, until he put it in my mind. Like, right. oh, is she? No, she's not. <clears throat> she's a lawyer, for God's sake. Yeah, but um, you understand, though, he's, he's framing the question in terms of, of the public uh, response to the verdict, right? He, he's asking the question uh, basically because there is this huge swell of women standing outside the courtroom with signs that say hashtag we believe uh, victims yeah. and, and we believe the women, et cetera, et cetera. So he's that's asking. That's why we don't prosecute people in the public. Well, that's right. No, but, but I guess in that sense, it's fair for him to say it because okay, it has been said thing. by others. You go ahead. One more thing. I, I'm not. Uh, um, is it, do you guys think it's an advantage of having a female lawyer representing you in a rape trial than having a male lawyer? I, I, I'm, just, I'm just curious whether it's... Uh, a I lot don't of know. Times you, you see you that. Know. They always have a female lawyer. No, I think that's a parlor trick that any uh, judge worth his or her salt would see through. Okay. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you, man. Okay. No, yeah. I think I think it, I think it, uh, to the public it looks oh smart. He got this sharp woman to be his defense lawyer, uh, but I th- I don't think that uh, Justice William Horkins considered it. I, I do wonder if if it was a, a jury that had heard this case, which of course it wasn't. Right. Whether the jury might have had more sympathy for the women if it were seen that a, it was a male attorney picking apart their story, but. It shouldn't matter. At the end of the day, you got to consider the evidence. And did these women contradict themselves? Yes. Did they with, withhold important things? Yes. I, and a good lawyer is gonna, going to point that out. And that's what this one did. Your gender shouldn't matter. Right. Did she talk about the public at all in this, by the way? Like the hashtag about... 
Well, she does. Yeah. Why don't we get to that? Because there's that, you know, I believe survivors. And that's what, what leads people to be angry. These women said it happened. We should believe women who come forward. But yet Zhang Gameshi was acquitted here. So there's there's the disconnect. So so here's Peter Mansbridge asking the question. The I believe survivors line used a lot before mm-hmm. this case started, during mm-hmm. the case, and immediately after. And by some reasonably prominent people, right. uh, including prominent politicians, Tom Mulcair, leader of the NDP, um, not just a politician, but a lawyer. When you hear people use that line, mm-hmm. how do you react to that? Well, it depends on who's using that line, right? Hashtag I believe is not a legal principle, nor should it ever be, uh, because you can't believe people based on who they are or the nature of the crime. We would never want that, and historically when that has happened, uh, it's never been to the benefit of the most disadvantaged or the most marginalized. So we don't presumptively believe police officers, we don't presumptively believe politicians or priests or whatever it is. So. On a personal level, if if somebody wants to express their support, that's their choice. When a politician weighs in, uh, that's a little more concerning to me because you're a person who is uh, uh, engaged and uh, should be more knowledgeable about what uh, you're commenting on. And uh, when you are denigrating the legal system in which you worked, uh, and which you should actually be very proud of. Uh, we have one of the greatest legal systems in the world. Uh, and you do so not having read a word of transcript and not having informed yourself of the case. That's disappointing and not something I would put much stock in. But it sure does get you a lot of votes, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know, that's an important question she raises. What does it mean to say, I believe, survivors? Because you can't use that as a basis for a conviction. It certainly wouldn't cut the other way. If a, if a man accused a woman of sexual assault, would these same protesters be out with their signs and online with their hashtags about, I believe, survivors? They'd say, no, okay, wait a sec, wait a sec, let's, let's review the evidence here. Well, more accurately, they just wouldn't care. Well, there's that too, sure. Look, here's the problem with I believe, and it's fine if you just want to believe people without any scrutiny. Like, that's, that's totally the purview of whoever stands out in front of the courtroom holding up a sign with a hashtag on it. Um which is another weird thing we can talk about some other time. It's off topic, but the, the, the point is this, all right? And Christy Blatchford pointed this out. I wish it was my original idea, but she made a big point of this, is that you can't have a police force that says, we believe. You should have a police force that says, we will investigate. We will, if, if, some, if you have been wronged, if a crime has been committed against you, you should come to us and we will investigate your allegations and by the way, we won't shame you because that's the biggest problem in this is the shame and the stigma around being a victim of sexual assault, male or female. But we know that women have gone to the cops for decades in this country with sexual assault claims and, you know, been turned away. I mean, listen, maybe it's, it's even more 1960s than it is today to say, yeah, well, honey, look at your wearing. Look at what you're wearing. You were asking for it, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that that was the case in this country for a very long time in many police precincts. We're, we're better at that now. We are. We're demonstrably better at that now, but we still have cops who say things like, I see some of the things the women wear when they come in and complain about this, and then we get slut walks. So look, we have to cure that, and we can do that institutionally. I don't think we can do that collectively as a society, but certainly institutionally, we can do that. And we've, so we've got to get rid of the shame and the stigma that we associate with reporting these kind of crimes, and then we'll be somewhere. But to focus on a trial that went well according to the, the rules of war here, I think it's just, it's, it's, we're just, you know, we're in the mud. We're spinning our wheels. Yeah. 
the most we can say is we'll take your claim seriously. And investigate it. Right. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Some final thoughts on this. We'll set up our next segment as well. We're back with more right after this. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.